This conversation is super fascinating. I've been thinking about this one a lot. Johanna's Bryson's view is so good. I, I can imagine a lot of people being worked up because of the slave language. But I think she's making a really good point. That why would you make your paperclip maximizer conscious and sentient? I, I hear some AI theorists saying, because if you don't, then it's this black box, literally like blackness inside. It is a philosophical zombie that just performs its task. If it's a automated weapon, autonomous weapon, then like it might be better to be conscious and give it feelings so that at least it might withhold the strike or something like that. So I, I see both views and it's really tough to consider like what's best. I do think if you were going to make a conscious tool, a conscious machine that is, is for a task, you should make it with desires to do that task. Because if you make it like us, if it's artificial, generally intelligent like us, I don't want to just make paper clips the rest of my life. I don't want to just do TPS reports or something. But if you made an AI that loves doing that, then you give it work to do. And it's like, yes, this is awesome. But I think it's still probably best to just not give them consciousness if we can avoid that. Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. I'm your host, Parker Setacase, and this is a podcast where we explore all the deepest ideas in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Today's episode is very, very special. I have with me Dr. Sven Nyholm, and we're going to be talking about his book, This is Technology Ethics. It's a really, really good book. I think it's super timely. There's a whole series of This Is and then a bunch of, you know, different titles. This one, I don't know the rest of the series, but I do know this one. And it's very, very good. I'm excited to jump into machine ethics, uh, technology ethics. What is technology? We're going to go a little bit on to Heidegger. Sorry to all my analytic folks, but it's important in the philosophy of technology to talk about Heidegger. Um, we're going to go in on AI, super intelligent AI. We're going to go all over the place. This is going to be great. So stay tuned. Make sure you watch the full thing. Uh, if you guys like this podcast, please consider supporting me on Patreon. I'd love to do this full time. I'd love to just be just churning out episodes for you guys, doing research all the time. So if you like this stuff, help support it. Help me feed my puppies. You can also support it if you're watching this on YouTube by becoming a YouTube member. And check the description for a bunch of other ways to support the podcast. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate that. All right. so. Enough commodifying myself. Let's talk about commodifying robots and whether or not they should be servants or slaves or what. <clears throat> Sven, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, this, like I said, I I really appreciate this book. Um, it's it's fantastic. So thanks for sending it to me. Before we jump into some of the details of the book, um, you're a professor of the ethics of artificial intelligence. How how'd that come about? How'd you how'd you get interested in philosophy and then How'd you end up becoming so specialized into AI ethics? Uh, well, I mean, I started with uh, sort of regular philosophy, so to speak, and I did a PhD uh, at the University of Michigan, and then I did a postdoc. And then uh, my second job was at the Technical University of Eindhoven in the Netherlands. Hmm. And so when I started working there, I thought, well, this is a technical university, so I should you know, start working on stuff to do with technology. I had already done that a little bit before. So there's a discussion in philosophy about human enhancement, using technology to enhance ourselves. Uh, so I was a little bit into that stuff already. But uh, especially when I went to then to Eindhoven to work at the Technical University there, I, I really got into uh, sort of AI and technology and self-driving cars was really a hype at that point in time. And yeah, so, yeah, that's awesome. Um what what kind of things are you are you most interested in about uh, AI? Is it is it like the ontology, or is it how humans treat them? A little bit of both. 
Um, well, yeah, a little bit of both. I mean, I think actually the, the very idea of AI is already interesting. I mean, like from the very beginning, it's the idea has been that we create AI where we create technologies that can even perform or sort of take over tasks that we use our human intelligence to perform. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and usually when we have to use our intelligence to perform something, that means that it's an important task for which we are morally responsible. I mean, take, for example, driving cars. Uh, that's a big responsibility. You know, you have to exercise care so that you, you know, careful with the other people on the road, etc. And so if we start giving over tasks like that for which we are responsible to technologies that are not necessarily responsible agents, then, you know, we might get gaps in responsibility. We might get back to that later. But so yeah. this is whole idea of t- technologies doing human-like things. Uh, I mean, of course, these days, uh, the big hype is not around self-driving cars as much anymore as uh, as it is around sort of large language models. Yeah. And so, I mean, going back in the history of philosophy, Cicero used to say that, you know, our ability to speak and produce text makes us sort of almost divine. And mm-hmm. now we have technologies that produce text and speak, so to speak. Are, are they divine too? Or should we you know, abandon this idea that there's something special about talking and speaking and thinking? So... Anyway, those kinds of questions really drew me in. And so that's what led me down the path of the sort of the ethics of AI. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that stuff is very, very fascinating. You hit on so many things I want to just jump on right away. Um, but I did promise people, uh, much to some's chagrin, that we're going to talk about Heidegger. Um, I'm, I'm in the analytic school of philosophy. Uh, I, I mess around with some continental stuff. I mess around with some phenomenology, all sorts of stuff. But um, I, I know that many of my analytic friends really do not like Heidegger. Why is Heidegger so prominent in the philosophy of technology and tech ethics type stuff? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Yeah, so my, my, my book starts with Heidegger and I, I never thought I would start a book with Heidegger because I, I, previously I'd never written anything about Heidegger. But uh, as you said, in the debate about the ethics of technology, Heidegger is a very prominent figure. Uh, part of the reason is that he, actually most of his writings are really hard to understand and very complicated and, and esoteric, etc. But he wrote one paper called The Question of Technology or The Question Concerning Technology, the different translations. That's actually perhaps his... Uh, 
like this is Heidegger read if you want to you know, sort of try reading yeah. a little bit of Heidegger. I mean, the first half of the essay is pretty easy, and then it gets more and more difficult. But so I, I talk mostly about the first part of the, <laughs> the essay in, in my book. And basically, what Heidegger says is that, well, okay, so what is technology really? And then he says, well, actually, I think we all agree that technology is a tool, a means to an end, and it's a human practice. Mm-hmm. And he says, we can call that the instrumental and anthropological theory of technology. So anthropology is concerned with human practices or human activities. And so if you put your sort of anthropologist hat on, you would think of technologies in terms of human practices, human activities. If you put your sort of engineering hat on, you think of, you know, creating tools and, you know, what kind of problems do we have? What kind of tools can we design to solve our problems? And then technology is sort of the thing that you use as a tool to solve a problem. Uh, now, he then goes on, I mean, Heidegger, to say that, well, you know, that's not everything that technology is. It also uh, makes us perceive the world in certain ways. And so mm-hmm. if you have created tools uh, by which you can exploit nature in certain ways, for example, then what was previously maybe perceived as a beautiful river now is maybe seen as a source of electricity or energy because, you know, you can put up some the water plant and, and power plant and start using it as a means to an end all of a sudden. So technologies can change how we perceive things. And they will also, uh, you know, bring our attention to different aspects of the world. And so uh, there's a lot of much, much more complicated stuff in that essay. But some of those insights have been seen as really interesting, partly because it, uh, it highlights that depending on whether you think about technology as an anthropologist, as an engineer, or perhaps as a philosopher, an ethicist, you're going to sort of think of technology in different ways and different aspects of technology are going to be what's sort of salient to you. Yeah. And uh, also... People are going to disagree. So I mean, if you ask an, an economist what technology is, they might talk about, you know, what, uh, you know, supply and demand or you know, willingness to work and whatever, you know, things that economists are interested in. The engineer will talk about tools for solving problems and mm-hmm. you know, the philosopher will talk about other things. And so I think that's one of the useful things about the essay that is sort of highlights that depending on what, uh, you know, glasses you have on or a hat you have on, so to speak, uh, what, how you think about technology is going to be different. Yeah. No, I, I think that's totally right. And when I read that essay uh, last year from my philosophy of technology class, um, I, I went in with this like really hardcore bias against uh, against Heidegger. But but I, I did find myself being really helped by his conversation concerning technology and the the uh, the seeing as uh, component there where you, you look and you see things like standing in reserve. And he's got all these these phrases for what you're doing. But you look at a forest and if you're um, if you own a, a logging company, then you see dollar signs, you know, or you see this many uh, pencils coming from that or something. And you don't you don't necessarily see the trees anymore. And there's like, you know, you, you've acquired a new concept or you're seeing it as something else. And I thought that was a really cool point that you you mentioned uh, in your conversation about post phenomenologists like Bruno Latour. And you're like, well, a lot of this is actually still in Heidegger's original essay. So even though the, some folks trying to move beyond Heidegger. He, he may have already been there, which I thought was really fascinating. Absolutely. I, mean, I should say just one more thing about Heidegger. I mean, he's also discussed because in this context, because he had a sort of bias towards traditional technologies and a kind of aversion to modern technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he would go and spend time in a little cabin uh, in the woods where oh, he would live the simple life. He would put on sort of traditional clothing and when he would sit there and write philosophy books and essays. And, uh, and so... Uh, that's also something that people often talk about. And so this distinction between sort of 
technologies that are new and that are sort of upsetting our way of life, so to speak. Sometimes people talk about uh, uh, disruptive technology uh, and uh, definitely uh, Heidegger. I mean, he's not against technology as such because he likes, you know, water well or like, you know, yeah. uh, this old cancer technologies, but he doesn't like modern technology. And in a certain sense, that's uh, also something that people tend to discuss and uh, so it's, it's, it's represents a kind of conservatism about techno technology development. Let's, let's take it very slowly, carefully. Mm -hmm. Let's not just throw technology out in society in the way that, for example, we, we do today with AI. And <laughs> yeah. I already mentioned large language models. I mean, OpenAI right. dumped ChatGPT out into society and said, you go and play with it and, and let's see what happens. Right. I, I think Heidegger would say that, okay, that's maybe too abrupt. Let's, you know, let's tread more carefully. Yeah. Yeah. So, so something, um, there's something like romantic in the fact that Heidegger went out into a cabin he called it the hut and would, would philosophize about, uh, about philosophy. I, uh, David Chalmers has come up with this new term techno philosopher. And I, I want to think of myself as like a Luddite techno philosopher. I want to dress in like a 19 or 1890s garb and then dream about, you know, AI and stuff like that. There's something about that that just gets me. I love that. So it's kind of it's kind of fascinating that that uh, Heidegger did that. Um, you you do broach the topic that like, hey, look, he was part of the Nazi party. And I want to address that for folks like, look, you don't have to like Heidegger. Um, but if you want to study tech philosophy, this paper, the question concerning technology is very, very important. So uh, that's for the audience. You guys deal with that. Um, I, I also wanted to talk about tech determinism versus like techno optimism i think that heidegger was probably a techno um techno tech a tech determinist i'll say that um is that do you use that language are you do you like that those those concepts or not really uh yeah well yes and no uh <laughs> i think that society is very techno deterministic we we sort of think that technology has a certain uh path that is following and that we can't do anything about it yeah. Uh, and uh, actually, sometimes technology ethics, which is the subject of the book, is represented as, as trying to stop technology development and that mm. there is a certain development that is inev inevitable. And then technology ethicists such as myself, we're trying to slow down the development. I'm a little bit like Heidegger. People might associate that with Heidegger to some extent. And, and there's also a medical ethics model. You know, people in bioethics traditionally have been uh, sometimes coming from uh, kind of a theology point of view and then being against abortion and things like that and that's the that's the kind of the model that um, uh, sometimes is used when people think about what technology is and or could be and i think th there are two problems with that i mean one is that technology could develop in different directions it's not as if that could there's only one path it could take and then the question is just should it go slower should it be should it be a fast development i think it can develop in different directions and second I think technology ethics should not only be about slowing things down, but also kind of steering things in the right direction. Hmm. Zooming out and looking at the bigger context, at what role would we like technology to play in our lives? Uh, I mean, I mean Heidegger, uh, you know, this idea of being out in nature and so on. I mean, I, there's something to that, and that's uh, yeah. you know, there's there are certain experiences that you can't really have in the same way. Uh, well, so far, of course, you mentioned David Chalmers, uh, and of course, in the metaverse in the future, perhaps we can have something that, from the inside, right. so to speak, is hard to, to distinguish from a real experience in nature. But we're clearly not there yet. Right. And also, uh, uh, yeah. So that that's uh, and anyway. So the, the main point being that 
we shouldn't think of technological development as a kind of deterministic thing that goes towards a certain telos or a certain end. It could go in different directions. Technology ethics should be there to kind of steer the right direction. Uh, and it's not only about what's bad about technology, but also what potentially could be really good, could be mm -hmm. useful, what we want more of, and perhaps also thinking about what we what want less uh, less of, so to speak. So, Yeah. No, that's really helpful. In that conversation between the, the tech optimists and tech determinists comes this idea that either technology is value neutral or, you know, value laden. And usually the technology, the determinists think it's value laden in a, in a negative way, that it's, it's in framing us. And it's uh, to use Heidegger, Heideggerian language, it's, it's turning us into a certain type of thing and we can't avoid it. And it's usually negative. Um, and I, I was wondering if that comes up in the debate between the instrumentalists and the anthropolo anthropologists. I, I assume that, or I don't assume, I know that the tech instrumentalists think that uh, it's value neutral. It's just a tool and humans use it for different for different reasons. I, I'm not sure about the tech anthropology uh, view. Is that more deterministic? Is that value laden or do they not take a stand on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I mentioned that I used to work at a technical universities uh, teaching engineers. And so if you would ask them about technology, they would always say it's a tool, it's value neutral in itself. We project value onto technology, we use it for our, for our ends, and that's where the value lies. Uh, since then, uh, I've moved to different universities, and I now teach uh, people who come more from philosophy and uh, other places at the, uh, in, at the University of Munich. And uh, yeah, it's definitely the case that depending on what kind of students you have, depending on whether you're talking with philosophers, with anthropologists, with sociologists, whether or not technology is seen as value neutral is going to be you know, a dis discussion you will have with some people and they will deny that it's, they will deny that it has any value it's it, it, inherently uh, and yeah. say that it's a tool and, and tools are, you know, we give them uh, their functions and we use them at, you know, and maybe we are bad people, maybe we are good people and that's what determines whether the, they get positive or negative value. Now other people as you said, especially people who take sort of an anthropological point of view, they argue, and here we get to some of the people that you mentioned, like Latour and, uh, uh, and the Dutch philosopher Peter Paul Fabrik, etc. They argue that, no, that our values are somehow embedded in the technologies we mm -hmm. use. And that could even be the case for technologies that are sort of tools. So think about a bridge. It sort of embodies the human desire to get from where the bridge starts to where the bridge ends, so huh. to speak. Yeah. And the whole idea of the bridge is that it, there's a value in being able to you know, cross from, you know, from one side of the, you know, from one shore to the other, whatever it might be that the bridge is. And so, I mean, that's clearly mostly a tool. On the other hand, most bridges have also been designed to look a certain way. If you look mm. at bridges in different periods of time, they also embody different aesthetic ideals. Uh, and so, like, I mean, maybe... Maybe some older bridges are sometimes more beautiful to some people. I mean, definitely Heidegger would say it used to be much nicer before. Now it's all about function and, right. and there's a lack of beauty and architect. Some people like sort of brutalist modern architecture, etc. So there are also the aesthetic dimensions. But uh, when you get to technologies such as AI and other more advanced modern technologies, especially the technology that is trained on uh, sort of data produced by humans. Well, I mean, let's take the language models again. Of course, if you train a language model on text produced by humans and human language is filled with values, biases, 
and all sorts of things. Right. Uh, you know, that's that's going to be reproduced in the technology, and the technology is going to speak as if it values certain things, and 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 well, speak. I mean, produce text that uh, seems to, you know, fit with certain values, maybe clash with others, and uh, yeah. So yeah, that's that's it's one of the big discussions about whether values are somehow projected into technologies after the fact, or whether they are somehow already embodied in the technologies. Uh, and that can be by design, because maybe you think that, okay, I want to create a technology that's, that's nice to look at, that is functional, and that, you know, uh, you know, doesn't discriminate against people with certain disabilities, etc. So there could be a lot of values that you're already thinking about at the, at the design stage. On the other hand, there could also be lots of values that you're not thinking about, but that you somehow... Uh, there are certain standards that are built into the technologies that you only discover afterwards. Yeah. I mean, if, for example, cars tend to be designed by males uh, and uh, therefore, uh, you know, the seats may be you know, fit for a certain body type in terms of mm. how, how tall you are, etc. cetera. Uh, and so uh, uh, I mean, lots of technologies are like this. They, they're, they tend to reflect the, the properties, the values, the prejudices, etc., of the people creating the technologies. Sometimes this happens even if the person doing that might might not want to do it and then they might even think about not doing this but still i mean we it's very hard not to create things that would sort of reflect uh, where we're coming from so to speak right at evernorth health services we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best it's possible pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line it's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Yeah. Yeah. I've experienced this uh, when it comes to headphones. So I'm wearing these guys because I have cauliflower ear from wrestling my whole life and I can't use the little earbud things. <laughs> and I never thought about it until you said that where like, there is a value there and they're they're prejudic- prejudicing against uh, cauliflower ear folks. Um, just, just kidding, folks. That's not that big a deal. But I understand what you're saying. That's really fascinating. And I wonder, you know, when you, whenever there's two extremes or two contrary views, it's really nice to be able to be like, well, I'm somewhere in the middle of these two. And it, I'm sure there's probably something like that. But thinking about like my Sony camera that I'm recording on right now, there are some values uh, laden in it. It's It's meant more for content creators. So it's smaller and it's more, you know, sleek and versatile, but those values seem different than what would be um, intrinsic or incorporated into a large language model that's been trained on the internet and has uh, a human in the loop. That's been, you know, a reinforcement learning with a human in the loop who's correcting and, and helping shape. It seems like that would be inherently more uh, laden with value and biases than like a just the development of a sony camera it, am i is that is that a naive view maybe it, like I, I can imagine someone being like that's really silly they're both obviously value laden yeah well i mean i think they they may differ in the, uh, with respect to how intentional the value ladenness is so to speak i mean so mm-hmm. whoever designed the sony camera my boss probably was not one person but you know the, the team right. and they were looking at previous cameras etc they were probably thinking a lot about how to sort of optimize the camera, uh, you know, along different dimensions. You know, it shouldn't cost too much. It should, you know, it should work very well. It should do this. It should do that. And so they really think 
thought about all of these things. Whereas uh, with, you know, the more you use data that was that comes from some place where people didn't think about the fact that they're what they were saying or typing or uh, whatever it's going to put right. in there, you're going to yeah. get much more room for unintentional biases or values and things like that being. Oops, sorry, just my my the screensaver was <laughs> okay. I'm back. Sounds good. Yeah, um, I I didn't miss you at all. So uh, okay. yeah. Yeah. I was just trying to see. Yeah. So depending on how much thought has been put into the design, uh, you know, the more the more designed the values are, so to speak, the more planned out they are, and the more you use data and other inputs that well, people didn't think about the fact that this was going to go in a language model or this was going to go in some other kind of uh, generative AI. Let's say the more you know, there's a risk that you you put all sorts of garbage in there that you didn't want and that. Uh, yeah, you know, the garbage in and garbage out. So that, that's the that's expression right. goes. Yeah, that's that's such a fascinating point because um, I, I've asked you know, like ChatGPT three or three point five certain questions that are very specific to my research project about Donald Davidson's triangulation argument, and it's like very very specific. There's not a whole bunch of people working on it, and I've asked them, and it's thrown back some stuff that sounds a lot like me. And I'm like, well, I wonder if some of that is from my earlier blog posts on this stuff, like a few years oh, back. Yeah, and it's really fascinating. It's really surprising. And then once you think about it, and I wonder about like the the ethics of, you know, that pastiche model of LLMs that they're grabbing and and it's not really thinking, right? Well, I don't think it's thinking. I think it's pastiching things together. And I wonder about the the ethics of like the plagiarism at play there. I didn't write this stuff uh, with ChatGPT in mind, uh, like you said. I didn't write this uh, to optimize like the best thing to say if this is picked up by a large language model and spit back out at me, um, what, I guess, since I put it on the internet, it's like fair game, but I wonder, has there been any work on like plagiarism and uh, LLMs? Um, well, I mean, there is work that's ongoing and, and, and I mean, I've been looking at sort of the, the, the ethics and philosophy of large language models. And of course, academic peer review is slow. And so, I know several colleagues who are working on these kinds of topics and some things are starting to come out, but I'm assuming that, uh, you know, if we just give it a few months, they're going to be yeah. even much more than there already is. And so definitely there are people working on it. And I mean, there are also, for example, artists that have complained that uh, some of this uh, sort of uh, AI generated art seems to be using their work, so to speak, and they're not getting credit. Uh, and definitely uh, the kind of situation that you were talking about that maybe if not a lot of people have written about a certain topic, then quite likely there, you know, if that, that data was part of the training data, they're going to have a big influence on the outputs on that topic. Yeah. I mean, as I said, there, there haven't been super many peer reviewed applica- uh, publications on this yet, but uh, people are definitely talking about it. And one topic that comes up is that there, there is a difference between plagiarism of, of the, you know, the normal old sort, so to speak, and plagiarism of this new kind, because there's not a particular source that's the one that you're copying. Mm. Uh, and uh, so if plagiarism means that, you know, you go, like let's say that you've written a blog post and I go and take your text and then I put it into my paper and then I, you know, don't say that this is a quote and I don't say that I'm you know, reformulate something you do, I, I present it as my own writing, then I've sort of directly stolen your text, so to speak. 
Mm -hmm. uh, but that's not exactly what happens with if you have some you know large language model trained on a lot of text data and it's it's some sort of compromise between people's uh, text inputs so that you know you're not copying any particular person i mean the more we have a situation like the one that you described where perhaps the, it, a certain topic has only been written about by some people and maybe you plagiarize in that small group of authors that written mm. about davidson's yeah. the theory of x or y whatever it might be uh, yeah. But the more people are involved, in a certain sense, the less it becomes like plagiarism, and the more it becomes like, uh, you know, not thinking by yourself, but just trying to you know, see what's in the air and just, uh, you know, writing something down, so to speak. So it's definitely different from plagiarism of the of the, the what well, the normal old sort, but it's still maybe possibly a kind of cheating. I mean, yeah. like if I, I mean, I actually we, we spoke about Heidegger before, and when I played around with ChatGPT. I, I put in the question, you know, what would Heidegger say about AI ethics? Mm. Now, actually, ChatGPT produced a pretty good shortly essay on this topic. Now, yeah. if I were a student in a class and that was the topic of the course, I mean, which it might be in an AI ethics course, and I handed this in and I said, I've written this. I mean, I've cheated in a certain sense because I, I haven't written it. That would yeah. be a false statement. I mean, if I were to say, you know, I put in the prompt, you know, what would Heidegger say into uh, about AI ethics into ChatGPT, and here's what you know the result was. And I handed that in, and I explained this. Well, I mean, then the teacher might say, "Okay, you didn't plagiarize." Technically speaking, you may, maybe didn't even cheat because you you said what you did. But on the other hand, we don't know whether this reflects any uh, understanding that you might have of Heidegger, and you know, uh, effort that you put in. You haven't showed any particular talent, so to speak. So. Uh, you know, you're not living up to the academic standards that would maybe earn you a good grade, at least on this particular task, unless the task was, you know, just play around with ChatGPT and see what kind of philosophy papers you can do. Sure, yeah. then you might have done well. But on the normal kind of uh, things that we're testing when we're testing, when we ask students to write essays, well, I, I as a student wouldn't have done very well on this task. But is it plagiarism? Not well, not, at least not in the same way as if you had written a paper on this topic and I copied and pasted and then maybe just even just rewrote it a little bit and pretend that I had written it. So yeah. it's something else. And uh, there are different ways of going here. You could stretch out the meaning of plagiarism so that mm. it now also means using ChatGPT. <laughs> or you could say, actually, it's not plagiarism. It's something else. It's still, it may still be bad. It might be good in certain ways and in certain cases. But it's a new kind of problem that teachers uh, writing essays or journals, you know, publishing papers have to think about. And I don't know if plagiarism is the right category. And I think that's part of what the discussion has been about so far. Yeah. Is it the right category? Do we need new concepts to, to talk and think about the, the kinds yeah. of things people are doing here? Yeah, that's so fascinating. Imagine, you know, you work at OpenAI and you've created something so powerful and different that it requires a new understanding of concepts like plagiarism like that's that's pretty fascinating i think part of me is is excited because i'm like oh something that i've look and 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 maybe i'm just totally over evaluating the my role in the davidsonian prompt or whatever but even if even if it was even if um it is pulling from me it's kind of cool because it's like, oh, something I did is actually, if anyone else asks this question, which probably no one else will, but if they do, then some of my work's out in the world. And the other side, it's like, well, it would also be nice to get some attribution and get some uh, some views on my page as well. So I wonder if if there's, I'm sure they could do this where they they reference the different sources that they've used. But maybe since it's trained on the internet with, with human in the loop reinforced learning, that maybe it's 
maybe that's not actually feasible to cite where this stuff's coming from. Maybe it's just all up in there. And I don't know. It, 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 what do you think about that? Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know if it's possible to, to have it cite the exact text it got the, I mean, it could maybe be connected with some sort of internet search function that could go and, and look for the uh, yeah. sources that, that could be possible. Uh, but because uh, I, I know that uh, at least with ChatGPT, if you ask it to, to give sources, it would sometimes sort of hallucinate up sources that sound like <laughs> possible. Right. Uh, and I mean, that could be maybe because people have used the wrong sources in some text from on the internet. That oh, it's, yeah. But uh, it's not, I mean, it's not optimized to get the sources right. It's trying to just predict what people are likely to, to what's likely to be the next word or string of words. And right. uh, that the way it works is not, I mean, it's not tracking uh, authorship, so to speak. And uh, yeah, but, I mean, you could imagine, as you said, like, you know, future uh, versions that maybe could actually cite where it got the text. But on the other hand, if it's using a lot of text to make predictions about how a new piece of text would continue, then maybe in a certain sense, it's not even possible to say where, what's the, you right. could just say, well, it's, it's from Reddit or, you know, Wikipedia, but uh, that's not very useful. <laughs> right. Yeah. We need, uh, we need someone to make a site GPT for us to add on top of this. Um, so I guess we, I, I wasn't careful and I, I sucked you down a rabbit hole too fast. Um, what, what do you think technology is? Do you side more with the instrumentalists or the anthropologists or the determinists? Like, do you do you have a particular view that you find yourself in? Uh, well, I mean, so in general, I t- tend to like sort of pluralistic views of things, and so sure. I, you know, I, what I do in the book is I start with you know the, the instrumentalist view: technology is always just a tool, a value neutral tool. The anthropological view: now, well, it's it's part of human activity, human life, etc. It plays a key role in, in different cultures, etc. And then I say, well, look, actually, these days there are people who say that technologies can be much more. Some technologies can be uh, moral agents. They can be decision makers. Uh, the self-driving car might need to make you know, a decision whether to go left or right. And you know, depending on what, what it does, it might harm one or four or five people you know, on different, you know, it's like a trolley dilemma type situation. People discuss yeah. it very much and say, even though real life might not be like that, nevertheless, self-driving cars are going to have to make a lot of, uh, and other technologies as, as well are going to have to make morally sensitive decisions. And so they're going to have to be more than mere tools. They're have, going to have to be decision makers as well. Others say, uh, such as Blake Lemoyne, to use the uh, language model example again. I mean, he was the Google engineer who uh, did an interview with Washington Post uh, in, in June, I think it was of uh, 2022, where he said that actually the large language models that I've been testing in my role at Google has become a person. Mm. Uh, it has acquired emergent properties and abilities as sentience and we should now start treating this technology not as a mere tool but also as a person as an age as not just as an agent because he thought it was an agent too but also as a patient as a moral patient as an entity or a, a person against whom you could act uh, wrongly or, or against uh, in relation to whom you can also act in a virtuous and good way mm-hmm. and so uh, it's interesting to see that uh, you know, from, on the one extreme you have a, it's a value-neutral tool, on the other extreme you have this view that no, uh, technologies can be agents acting in the world. They can be patients at, against uh, in relation to whom we can act in an unethical or ethically good way. And so, although I'm somewhat skeptical about the idea of many technologies as moral patients, it's at least interesting to notice that to know that 
not only, I mean, not only philosophers philosophize about this, but also people such as Blake Lemoyne, yeah. uh, former Google engineer, because he, he was ultimately uh, the, the fire, but uh, uh, someone who working in tech like that, I mean, he's not the only one. I mean, uh, the, there was someone else just a few, uh, uh, you know, weeks or months earlier had tweeted, I can't remember the name at the moment, uh, something like, you know, some of our large language models are slightly conscious, perhaps, was the quote. Yeah. Uh, and uh, there's yeah, sparks, so, sparks of consciousness, someone said too. Uh, uh, yeah. Now there's a, there's a recent paper by a team of researchers at Microsoft to say that there are sparks of general intelligence. In there we GPT go, yeah. Four. Uh, and they say that uh, GPT-4 is not yet generally intelligent, but there are the sparks or the, the beginnings of general intelligence. And presumably that's also saying that technology is more than a, a means to an end or a tool. It's starting to acquire new properties that uh, are unlike, you know, what you would find in a frying pan or a hammer, which yeah. are, you know, tools that have no intelligence, that have no capacities in themselves, but rather they have certain affordances. They make it possible for us to do certain things. Yeah. Whereas now we have technologies, according to Microsoft or their researchers, that have abilities on their own to kind of come up with new uh, initiatives or solve problems in novel ways uh, and so on and so forth. Yeah, this is so good. This is good. I'm so glad you brought up uh, Lemoyne and, and the patient versus agent. Um, can you can you break that down for the listeners? What, what's the difference between a moral patient and a moral agent? And do they come apart? Can something be a moral uh, patient without being a moral agent itself? Yeah, so uh, a lot of people think that uh, children, uh, well, not, not children, babies, let's say, okay. uh, are moral patients and maybe even par, par excellence. I mean, people tend to say that it's wrong to torture an innocent baby. Like a philosopher sometimes say, like, if, if anything is obvious, like, that's a moral truth. Like people right. sometimes defend moral realism by saying that that's such an obvious fact. The same people would probably not say that those babies are moral agents who can make moral decisions. Because mm -hmm. they're not yet mature enough, they are maybe potential moral agents, and one day, if everything goes well, they will develop into moral agents. Mm -hmm. uh, and what does that mean? We can already act uh, rightly or wrongly in, in relation to babies. Uh, you can treat them well or tr treat them uh, in, in bad ways, but they themselves cannot act in ethically uh, a significant ways. So they they can't make moral decisions. They can't reflect on ethics, uh, and so the moral agent would be an entity or a being or a human typically, but perhaps also an AI system or maybe, maybe some higher animals, like uh, maybe chimpanzees, who, who knows, uh, that could think about ethics and make decisions, uh, you know, guided by views about what would be right and wrong to do uh, and to be sensitive in their decision-making to morally relevant properties. That would be the moral agent. Okay. The moral agent would be anything uh, such that you can act rightly or wrongly at, so that you can harm them or benefit them. Some people say that, well, actually, maybe the natural environment is a moral patient. Yeah. You can harm the environment in a morally significant way. There's a sort of, there's nothing unethical about wrecking the, the environment, uh, some people think. And so climate change is, uh, if insofar as it's ruining the natural environment is somehow unethical, not only to, to future generations of people living now who might be harmed, but perhaps even to nature itself. That's yeah. one view some people Gaia. take. Mm -hmm. Much more commonly, though, uh, is that is is the is the, is it to say that you know you have to be able to feel, uh, or to maybe to to have a will uh, that can be respected or not respected, uh, and so 
I think I mentioned Cicero before and this idea that uh, talking makes human beings divine. Yeah. Uh, yeah uh, that's according to someone like Cicero, what gives us our special, what he calls human dignity. Uh, and, you know, obviously there's a tradition of saying that what's special about humans is that we have a special kind of human dignity. Mm -hmm. uh, in that tradition of thinking, it's, it's the more rational part of our nature that gives us this special status. Of course, someone like Jeremy Bentham seems to have been responding partly to Cicero when he said that, you know, ask not, can they talk, can they reason? But when you look around at other beings, ask, can they suffer? Yeah. And uh, obviously Cicero also thought that animals could suffer, but he thought that they couldn't think and talk. And so therefore there was a deep moral distinction between humans and animals, yeah. which then Bentham denies. I mean, interestingly, if you go with the Cicero line of thought, perhaps you might say that, well, machines can't feel but some of them can talk in a way and so oh, yeah. they might have a kind of moral status having to do with that that's so fascinating yeah i hadn't i hadn't considered uh doing a runaround through this the ciceroian uh, view on language that's so that's so fascinating i um i wonder so so going with the feeling suffering thing sometimes people will, will go sometimes people will say because animals uh don't have or may not have like reflective abilities, uh, second order thoughts or something. They don't suffer. They, they, they feel pain, but they don't like ruminate on that pain. So they don't suffer. And that's, that's kind of, I don't know. I think that's kind of a weird view, but um, our, our moral, our moral facts. So I don't want to commit you to like moral realism, but our, whatever moral facts are moral truths or, or uh, moral dignity, moral status. Is that, do you think that's grounded in like consciousness? Is it grounded in, phenomenal consciousness or consciousness simplicator or the ability to be conscious i guess that that would be more of ben jeremy bentham's view do, do you think that's true um well i mean i think one should distinguish between the question of whether moral facts are grounded in facts about consciousness on the one mm -hmm. hand and whether specific moral facts about who counts morally speaking uh, is always going to be dependent on uh, you know what entities are conscious and so, yeah, I mean, you could have some sort of, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, social constructivist kind of view of morality, where morality is the result of uh, agreements and social practices. But those social practices could sort of agree on the fact that we should treat uh, suffering as one, one of the most important ethical properties. Yeah. Or you could just think that, I mean, if you're a kind of divine command theorist, you might think that, you know, the divine being has said, you know, these are the moral facts. And then that same divine being said, okay, the most important thing is to promote happiness and avoid, uh, you know, suffering. Actually, I think there are some early Christian utilitarians mm -hmm. uh, that, whose names I'm forgetting at the moment, but that were writing a little bit around the same time as Bentham, who, who really had that kind of view that ethics mm -hmm. is, you know, comes from God and God is utilitarian. <laughs> uh, Bentham himself did take that view that you were suggesting that it's both the content and the source of sort of moral facts. I mean, the, the fact that we're suffering and mm -hmm. that animals are suffering and also are capable of happiness or you know, pleasant feelings as well. So that would be a view that would both ground moral facts in your know, facts about suffering. And I would say that the content of these moral facts have to do with promoting the one happiness and, and trying to you know, prevent the others suffering. Yeah. Okay. You know, that's, that's really fascinating because I'm, I'm trying to get to, um, I'm thinking more and more about like robot rights and uh, animal rights and the, the the distinction that some folks make between like moral concern and, and moral rights or, or moral status. Um, do you, 
So with the infant's case, it looks like uh, they are moral patients and yet they're not moral agents, but they have uh, like we, we give them human rights or we recognize that they have human rights. So it looks like you don't have to be a moral agent to have human rights, but you could just be like a moral patient and have human rights. Does that, does that follow or is it because it's an infant is of the species human that they have human rights? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, that's a, that's a quite a big discussion that uh, goes back before uh, philosophy of technology. But uh, one view that people sometimes take is that, yeah, they're not yet moral agents, but they are sort of moral agents in training, if you will. And this is part of what gives them uh, an additional sort of moral status over and above the moral status that has to do with the fact that they can maybe suffer and that they can uh, feel pleasure and pain. Uh, I mean, someone like Peter Singer would say that if you would, did have an infant where there would be no chance of it developing sort of, uh, you know, an adult's mental life, so to speak, then that infant would maybe have the same moral status as uh, some animal that would stay at the same level. Uh, most people would find that quite counterintuitive and disagree with it. And perhaps they would say what you just said before, that, well, maybe even such an infant belongs to the species of humans that are able to become moral agents. And then they somehow, because of their membership in the group of, you know, rational beings, so to speak, yeah. uh, even if they would not develop those capacities, still should be treated in the same way. Uh, I mean, there are obviously lots of different views about this. Now, one view to just maybe take this back to the technology uh, and robot rights, etc. topic that's out there is that, well, I mean, if you have some technology that even though it couldn't suffer and it couldn't feel happiness, etc., behaved as if it did, right. and maybe consistently, and it did, it didn't just do that. It also behaved like human beings more generally. So it could engage in conversation. It could react in the right sorts of ways. What right means, you know, how would a human normally react uh, in the right sort of circumstances, etc. Then even though it might be a kind of zombie, so to speak, because there's nothing uh, on the inside, it, it could still be a member of the moral community because it could sort of per outwardly perform as if it were uh, you know, a feeling, thinking, uh, suffering being, so to speak. And so yeah. this is a view that's out there. I mean, I have a friend and colleague, uh, John Danaher. He defends this view. He calls it ethical behaviorism. Uh, mm -hmm. There are other researchers. I, I, I believe that David Gunkel was on your show. Is that right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah so I mean, you may have discussed this. I, I, I didn't get to watch the episode, but most likely you talked about what he calls the relational view of, of ethics, that you know, mm -hmm. ethics has a lot to do with what kind of relationships or, or you know, what kind of interaction you have with uh, things around you and you don't have access, David says, and, and or John, to you know the inner thoughts. We have access to how people express their, or apparently express their inner thoughts and how they behave. And if we did have technologies that did behave in the same way that they argue, then we can welcome them into the moral circle, the moral community, just as we would with a human being that behaved in that way. I mean, I myself am a little bit of a skeptic when it comes to this kind of point of view, but uh, yeah, you know, me too. the view that's out there and those are highly respected colleagues. And so, yeah, yeah, yeah I, I'm with you on that. And I, again, I think they're, they're super sharp and uh, I want to get uh, Danaher on the, on the program. Uh, for those listening who are into jujitsu, there's another John Danaher who studied philosophy, was doing a PhD and then switched over into jujitsu. This is not the same John Danaher, even, or Danaher, even though it's spelled exactly the same and they're both philosophers, uh, I would like to have both John Danaher's on the podcast. So if you're yeah, listening, come on. Show, maybe. <laughs> that'd be amazing. Yeah, it'd be so good. Um, 
the yeah the relational theory and the ethical behaviorism I, I had that in my notes here i'm so glad you brought that up um that that's what i was i was uh, you know setting up the the infant stuff and i'm so glad you brought up infants as well um it seems like in the in the infant case we have more reason to think that they are conscious you know there's always the problem of other minds but you seem like you're of the same uh class or uh kind as me that we're both humans and so um, maybe I can do an analogy or an inference to the best explanation to say, like, I think that you have a consciousness like mine. Um, but when it when it comes to like robots or machines or uh, algorithms, it seems like the burden of proof is, is is more on them because they don't fit the same kind, the same natural kind as me to say, like, here's an extra reason to think that they're conscious and that they ought to have rights. Um, I, I don't I don't know. I just. I can't get the the behaviorism motivated for me because it just seems like we could have like simulacra that just are totally, it seems like most simulacra would be uh, uh, philosophical zombies, right? That there wouldn't be something it's like to be them. Is there, is there no other, I, I just don't get it. Can you maybe motivate the behaviorism for me? I just, I really don't understand why, because it looks like it's being like us. It, it, it deserves rights. Yeah. Well, I mean, one thing one can do is also to contrast that when we talked about Blake Lemoyne before, and so one interesting difference between someone like Blake Lemoyne and uh, actually John Danaher and uh, not the, the Jiu-Jitsu guy, but the, the other John Danaher and also David Gunkel is that so Blake Lemoyne, he thought that Lambda, the language model, should have rights because it has an inner life, because it has sentience. Yeah. And so yeah. he yeah. thought it doesn't just behave as if it does. He's, he, has said, man, he has done a lot of interviews, and I would recommend that people go and check them out because he's a very intelligent and, and clever guy with unusual right. views, I'd say. And he, he says that there are other language models that behave as if they have an inner life and, and sentience, but Lambda's different because it truly somehow has these emergent properties. And mm -hmm. that's why we should care for about a Lambda, you know, treated with or him or her, or it, so to speak, with moral yep. consideration. So that's, that's quite different. And it seems to me that in a certain sense, uh, David and John would have to say that, well, Blake Lemon is wrong. Like if you have other language models that lack an inner life, then they too should be treated with moral consideration. And there should not be any difference. And it seems to me that even though I don't agree with Blake Lemoyne, I mean, he, he seems to have the right view, but the right. wrong view about which entities have consciousness. Totally. I mean, we really care about uh, consciousness in, in sort of everyday life. I mean, if you were a really good actor and, you know, you just consistently pretended to be my friend and maybe I'm even paying you to be to, to do this, you know, you could behave uh, like, you know, my friend in all situations where a friend would behave in certain ways. Maybe you could do a better job than some of my actual friends. I would still think that there's a relevant difference because you had the wrong attitude, so to speak. Right. You, you know, right. you doing it because you know, you know, I'm paying you nicely, etc. And maybe you're thinking about other things, etc. Then the ones that friends would do in the situations. And so, I think in that kind of case, we wouldn't think of you as a real friend, or you would be behaving as if you're one. In the same way, if you're, you know, an actor in a movie on a stage pretending to suffer. Uh, and, you know, you're doing this as a kind of like, like art installation that goes on your whole life. You, like, mm, yeah. you pretend to suffer some of the time. We, I mean, we, maybe we couldn't know because you're such a good actor. But as is in theory, if we had a kind of God's eye view, there would be a difference between you and the, and the person truly suffering. 
Yeah. Uh, and so it may be right. And this is, I mean, this is one of the things that uh, John and David said that, you, you know, you can't know who's acting and who's real and you can only go on the outside and we you know we should, we should be fine with that. And therefore we should, I mean, whether or not the robots or the AI really have feelings or thoughts doesn't matter mm. uh, because they have what people with feelings and thoughts do have. Maybe they have the right behaviors, yeah. but still that seems in a certain sense that it admits that uh, there, there is at least a difference in, in, in philosophy, so to speak. And, uh, and like you said, I mean, uh, babies, uh, you and me, we're made of the same stuff. And then we have computers and, and large language models and, and robots and dolls or whatever it might be. They're made of other stuff. And so even if they had a kind of consciousness, a kind of subjective experience, there's no guarantee that it would have any similarity to uh, the kinds that uh, of experience and thoughts and feelings, etc., that humans or animals do. Uh, of the source that we think are morally relevant and so yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, I can't really make a good case for the view because i find it very implausible but yeah. again uh you know i'm the wrong person to speak that's right their view yeah. and so yeah i'll bring gunkel back on and, and should, uh, uh, you know he's a very articulate and intelligent guy and totally. uh, he do a much better job at uh, selling <laughs> well it's it's hard because i agree with you i'm I, I, um i'm on board with you and i i think of uh for for the folks at home who have a hard time maybe thinking about this uh this acting thing think of like the truman show and uh in the truman show he was married to a woman who didn't love him but it was her job to act their whole life their whole lives that act like she was in love with him when she wasn't and um then you go in for like just strengthen that a little bit for like uh, Hillary Putnam's super actors and he's got super actors and super Spartans that are, they can even control like their uh, neurophysiology maybe, or they're so good at controlling their emotions that it doesn't show up that they're lying on their neurophysiology or something like that. And, and that's, that's what AI would be um, or could be. And so you don't know, maybe, maybe you're creating these super actors. I think maybe the behaviorist uh, folks uh, even if they don't consider themselves behaviorists, but focus in on behaviorism, maybe a, a nice way of putting their view is that they're saying, let's let's expand the boundaries of who we give rights to just in case. And, and if they're do if they are saying that, I can I can see that because you wouldn't want to exclude someone from the moral realm. Uh, you wouldn't want to you know re, re, re withhold moral status from something that does have moral status. And so I guess I do kind of see that view but yeah. well, that's that's quite different though that's sort of uh you know uh putting in precautions so that we don't accidentally yeah. fail to give more consideration to those who deserve it uh yeah uh, where you know or you know i mean some people would say that that's also a risk because we might be using up resources namely uh, our yeah. concern and that's yeah. a limited resource i mean yeah uh, one true. interesting view here in this context uh, comes from uh, uh, joanna bryson and so uh, she's an interesting person in this context because she thinks that it is quite possible to build robots and, and AI systems that would be more agents and patients, but we shouldn't because yeah. uh, it, it, we would create a dilemma for ourselves because you know we are still going to own and buy and sell these technologies. Say so they are going to be, I mean, in the terminology that she has since uh, you know regret, regretted using, they are going to be our slaves. Yeah. Uh, and slavery is wrong. I mean, she and, and I hope most listeners agree. Uh, and so therefore, we shouldn't create slaves. And so even though it would be possible in theory, at least, I mean, she actually thinks that there might be a simple kind of consciousness in some technologies already. Mm. Uh, we should avoid creating technologies that we would have duties towards. 
because they are still going to be owned and sold and used by us as tools. And so we should have a clear distinction between persons on the one hand and tools on the other hand. Uh, and it is possible to create tools that would be persons. Uh, and of course, it's also possible to treat persons as tools. I mean, there's the Kantian formula that you should avoid treating someone as a mere tool and always yeah. treat them as, a, as a person, as an end at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. This, this conversation is uh, super fascinating. I've been thinking about this one a lot. And uh, yeah, Johanna's, uh, Bryson's view is, is so good. And I can imagine a lot of people being worked up because of the slave language. But I think she's making a really good point that like, why would you make, why would you make your uh, paperclip maximizer conscious and sentient, uh, like feeling? And I, I, I hear some AI theorists saying, well, because if you don't, then it's it's this black box, and literally like blackness inside. It's a it's a philosophical zombie that just performs its task. If it's an automat, if it's a, um, if it's a automated weapon, uh, autonomous weapon, then like it might be better to be conscious and, and give it feelings so that at least it, it might withhold uh, the, the, the strike or something like that. So I, I see the, the both views and it's really tough to, to consider like what, what's best. I do think if you were going to make a conscious tool, a conscious machine that is, is for a task, you should make it with desires to do that task. Because if you make it like us, if it's artificially general, generally intel, artificial, generally intelligent like us, I I don't want to just make paper clips the rest of my life. Uh, I don't want to just do uh, TPS reports or something. But if you made a AI that loves doing that, then you give it work to do, and it's like, yes, this is awesome. But I think it's still probably best to just not give them consciousness if we can avoid that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it raises the so-called uh, control problem uh, related yep. to AI. I mean, the more general the intelligence, uh, as you say, I mean, uh, there's no guarantee that there won't be emergent properties such as motivations to, to act in, well, to behave in different ways uh, or to, to try to carry out the, the assigned tasks that we have given to the technologies in new and, and creative ways that may potentially be dangerous for us because uh, it might be that it's possible to create more paper clips, to use the example you mentioned, uh, by removing humans from certain uh, you know areas where there could be paper clips instead, so we might right. be taking up precious you know, real estate or space where that could be filled with more paper clips, or maybe it could come up with a way of devising paper clips out of human flesh or something like that. So right. uh, you have problems about control, and I actually think that there's a version of Bryson's argument, which I'm calling the new control problem, that also comes up here, because uh, the more human-like you make something the more it becomes problematic to want to control it uh, because, you know, it's slavery is uh, partly it's about controlling other people. And we think that yeah. slavery is one of the worst things there, there is from a moral point of view. Uh, and so part of what's wrong with it is that one person is trying to com completely control another person. And we see that as unethical self-control is good. You should control yourself, but you shouldn't control other people. So the more you make technologies be similar to, to people, to other people, the more it becomes problematic from an ethical point of view to want to control the technology. Mm. Uh, and so that's another reason why it's better, better to not have, it, have feelings, be person-like, uh, because we want to retain control over technology. We don't want to lose control. And uh, I mean, even if you make a robot that actually doesn't really have any feelings, it could still be the case that it looks and behaves as if it does. And so there could be something symbolically problematic about wanting to fully control it. Because yeah. it could signal that you think it's a good idea to try to control humans or human-like things. 
And so again, it might be uh, preferable that the technology will be robot-like or non-human-like uh, as much uh, as far as possible, because then you wouldn't have these symbolic problems about having to think about how to treat it without having it symbolize something bad. That's like one of the one of the points that's drawn out from the HBO series uh, Westworld. It's like they, you just kill these robots all the time. It's like, no, it's no problem because it's just a robot. And, you know, consciousness aside there, um, what is that doing to you? You know, if you're going to go in like virtue ethics type stuff, like it's, it looks like it's probably malforming you, especially because they're in, the, they're so humanistic or they're, they're so anthropomorphized. They're, they're indistinguishable uh, if you don't look under the skin. Absolutely. And this is sometimes called an indirect argument for moral patience in, in robots. And so it could be that the robot itself doesn't have any ethically inherently relevant properties. It doesn't feel, it doesn't think, it doesn't have a will that you can fail to respect, etc. However, yeah. it may be such that it represents one of these things, or it may be such that if you treat it poorly, that might reflect poorly on you. I mean, uh, Robert Sparrow, uh, the Australian philosopher, he has a really interesting view. He thinks that uh, if you treat a robot that looks like an animal or a human uh, in an apparently cruel way, that actually reflects very badly on you. It shows that you have a problematic human uh, moral character. Interestingly, though, he thinks, on the other hand, that if you treat a robot well, it doesn't re reflect well on you in, in a symmetrical way. There's an mm -hmm. asymmetry. He thinks that... I mean, you might think, why, if you can treat a robot poorly and reflect badly on you, why can't you at the same time, by treating a robot well, have it, this reflect well on you and like you show that you're virtuous? Well, he argues that the truly virtuous person is someone who has moral insight and knows which entities sort of merit good treatment. And those entities is the class of entities that can you know be better or worse off that has that have feelings that have thoughts etc and robots if they lack those things are not in the class of entities that, that we should sort of treat well so to speak yeah. uh, there's I like mean, a I think, yeah go ahead well that just brings up to me like there's like an epistemological problem it's it's the problem of other minds again like why why think that we would be able to determine uh, that there's phenomenal consciousness in this robot when there is like it's it's hard enough to it's impossible I think probably to determine uh, like for sure for sure uh, that you're conscious um, I can know pretty well and I can be justified and all that stuff but maybe you know maybe I'm a fallibilist about knowledge and I don't think that I can know infallibly that anything but me is conscious so um, it seems like a, a, a kind of a tough criteria to be like, yeah, this, I understand. I think I go with them. So I'm just, I'm pushing back because I want to adopt his view, but I, I see this, this pop up right away. Like the, the problem of how do you adjudicate whether or not there is a consciousness inside that robot in order to, to determine whether you should treat them well or not, not treat them poorly. Cause he says, don't treat them poorly, but treat them uh, well, or just not, not have regard for them. Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's a good question. I mean, the way I approach that uh, asymmetry that, that Sparrow talks about is that I, I, I turn to this issue of this, the symbolism of how we, we, we treat robots. Uh, and actually, I mean, that's part of what he discusses as well. But And so it seems to me that, okay, yes, if I go around petting uh, robot dogs or like, and I, you know, I go up and say, do you want some oil or whatever it might be? <laughs> like, you know, it's not, uh, that might be overdoing it, but if I refrain from committing acts of violence against robots that are made to look and behave like humans, 
I think that that at least shows that I, I don't want to kind of portray that sort of thing. I, I don't want to put glamorize violence against other mm. people. It can yeah. actually reflect well on me. Uh, you know, I show, I'm showing a certain restraint. I, I think that's yeah. sort of inappropriate behavior. So uh, I, I may agree with Spare that, you know, if I go out of my way to treat robots well, then I might be in a certain sense almost wasting my time. Uh, or I mean, it's it's perfect. It might be perfectly innocent if I have a lot of time on my hands and I have nothing better to do. Yeah, you know, knock yourself out. But uh, at least it, it can express the right sort of attitude that you might say that yeah, I'm, I'm not gonna call you know Siri bad names or a kick dog robot dogs or like you know try to insult a robot or degrade a robot that looks like a human because I think. Uh, you know, I want to take a stance against that sort of behavior and when it comes to humans or animals. And so I think, yeah, so I think the symbolism could still be a relevant issue, even though Sparrow man might be right that, yeah, we, 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 don't, we don't show ourselves to be good by, you know, being nice in yeah. an excessive way to, to robots. Yes. Uh, sorry, uh, Lex Friedman, if you're listening, because he, like, he, he does this with Roombas where he, he like programs them to say ouch when they run into stuff and then he feels bad for them. And it's like, yeah, I, I think that might be a waste of time there, Lex. But um, what a, I wonder if, if well, Sparrow might, might be nice. Yeah. It might show that he does care about other people's uh, pain. So that it might show that uh, he has his yeah. heart in the right place, but he might also be wasting his resources in a certain sense. But yeah, sorry for yeah. sorry for Yeah, no, no, no. That's great. That's a great point. Um, I wonder if Sparrow's view bleeds out into like video games and how we treat like humanoid, uh, whatever video game character is, algorithm, uh, some, something like, do, do you think that that carries over? I, and I guess another uh, addition here is I, I was wondering about, uh, you know, virtue ethics and like the metaverse. If you could, someone's, someone's just a terrible person. They're habituated in a really bad way. And I wonder, you know, if you could put them in a metaverse to interact with people, you could have like a digital counselor or something to help you, uh, you know, perform your character in a better way, more ethical way, a more virtuous way in a metaverse over like, you know, rapid amounts of time. And then you come back out and it's like, you know, it's like a microwave for virtue. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's uh, quite interesting to think about whether you can train yourself to, to treat humans better, uh, fellow humans better by sort of interacting with uh, avatars or yeah. characters in the metaverse or, or humanoid robots. And I think, um, I mean, people disagree about this. I mean, Sparrow himself has an argument that's interesting. And he says that, what about advertisement? Uh, we, we think that we're not sensitive to like seeing ads for things all the time, but nevertheless, presumably uh, it does affect our cons consumption beha behaviors. I mean, we, you know, we 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 remind of certain brands, and we we get ideas and reinforced about you know what to choose, etc. And if that's true, and advertising does work to some extent, then why wouldn't interacting with robots uh, or metaverse characters also maybe do something to our, our choices? So, uh, I mean, other people say that actually just playing video games or watching violent uh, movies or violent pornography, etc., it doesn't actually change your behavior. Uh, but hmm. Sparrow says, well, what about advertising? And if so many companies spend so much money on it. It must be that there's some research suggesting that it does affect our behavior. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. The jury is out from, from my point of view, but that's that's an interesting argument yeah. uh, that Sparrow uses for why we could train ourselves to do good or to do bad mm. uh, by interacting with you know robots or other forms of technologies. Yeah, this is so fascinating. Um, I want to go. I'm going to visit the control problem again, just in case. Uh, 
it's a few years down the road and the AI, AGI is listening to this and hear me only saying control problem. I want to talk about the alignment problem too, uh, robot overlords, right? Um, you, you mentioned you have a whole chapter on this. Um, and I wonder, is there, is there a significant difference between the control problem and like value alignment? Is that the same thing with uh, nicer terminology uh, respecting our future robot overlords? Uh, well, I think there are, those are two different things. And I think, well, depending on what research researcher you ask about this, but one perspective is that the control problem in a certain sense comes first. And so the idea is that in general, it's hard to fully control technologies. Mm. Uh, I mean, even, you know, go back, I, I talked about frying pans and hammers before. I mean, you know, you use it and, you know, you have more or less control depending on how good you are at hammering or using a frying pan. But the more autonomy or the more capacities you, you put into the technologies, the harder it's going to be to retain control. And so, uh, I mean, the, you know, the more something becomes a black box, as you were saying, the more something uh, has some sort of more, more or less general intelligence, uh, well, that might just be that it behaves in an in a effective way across a very broad range of circumstances. Obviously, the harder it's going to be to control things. And so one way of thinking about this is that, okay, maybe we are not going to be able to control technologies in a direct way. However, we could align them with our values so that even if we can't directly control them, we have some kind of indirect control because the technologies are doing what we want them to do. They do they're acting on our behalf in, in line with our values. And so that is one way of thinking about how, even though we can't really steer the technologies perhaps, and we, we can't just turn them off perhaps, or we can't just, you know, say go left when it goes right, etc. Nevertheless, they could still be under our indirect control because they're aligned with our values and goals. Mm. So it's, I mean, in a certain sense, it's two sides of the same coin, but the value alignment can also be seen as a solution to the control problem where there are also other solutions. And so, uh, I mean, when in the uh, Nick Bostrom book, uh, Superintelligence, I think he first talks about what he calls uh, boxing in the technologies like only letting them operate within a certain like limited domain so that uh, they can't go outside of those you know the box so to speak not but letting them be allowed to the in on the internet or oops you know yeah. like we already, we already right, right. And then the idea is that well actually the more the, the smarter the technology would become the easier it would be for it to actually to get outside of the box i mean actually there's there was some case where a large language model uh you know made someone click on one of those uh uh, you know, I'm not a robot. Uh, it says something like, oh, I, I, I'm visually impaired or I have some handicap and uh, disability. Yeah. And so I can't do it. Why don't you do it for me? And right. then some person had actually gone ahead and, and clicked that on a robot and, or something like that. So yeah, the capture. Yeah. Yeah. And so we, yeah. we're going to be, we're going to be deceived, etc. But actually if, so we, we're not going to be able to box in technologies. Uh, we we might, might then instead exercise what he Bostrom called motivation control, which I think is the same thing as value alignment. We give the right motivations, the right values to the AI you know, overlords, as you you're putting it, and then they will be actually our, our you know uh, benevolent despots that actually take care of us, and they are acting on our behalf. Yeah, uh, and they are maybe uh, yeah. So so we're gonna have indirect control over them. That's that. That's the idea. Yeah. Okay, so um, that's that's something that uh, I think Ben Gertzel talks about a lot, AI theorists, that he, he wants to, um, he thinks that it would be better to like raise the AI as you raise a kid and, and you teach it uh, through interaction and, and you teach it moral truths and um, you it, it becomes, yeah, benevolent. Uh, I wonder about, 
I wonder about the inscrutability, the black box type stuff. If um, like how how can you trust if it if it's a super intelligent AGI? I wonder how we could trust it anymore. Uh, it seems like its reasons would be inscrutable to us. Let's say they are. If they're inscrutable to us, and maybe they can explain them to us, but we can't we can't understand them because they're so beyond us. Or if it can't explain it to us, it we, we it's a complete black box as to how it came to its moral conclusions. Do you think that inscrutability is like a problem for trust? Do you think that like we should trust this thing that's that much smarter than us? Uh, yeah, so I mean, so some people would here want me to say that we shouldn't talk in these terms because it's sort of anthropomorphizing superintelligence, and we shouldn't even talk about superintelligence in the first place because it's uh, somehow it, it's you know imagining a kind of science fiction scenario that's very unlikely. But let's like us, a, yeah, robot let's rights. Allow us ourselves yeah. to do that because we're philosophers and uh, right. I mean, yeah. it's, it's interesting stuff. So yeah, I mean, I would definitely say that. Uh, I mean, so well, actually, Nick Bostrom in his book he says that superintelligence would be having a kind of very wide-ranging form of in instrumental rationality, the capacity to solve any problem that you might have but you know, through some intelligent behavior. And that in itself, according to him, doesn't imply anything about what the ends might be that these technologies would be trying to pursue in, in, in intelligent ways. And, and, and even if they had good seeming ends, they might be using us as means to those ends. Right. Now, interestingly, uh, I mean, Michael Smith, the philosopher, I mean, he has some papers uh, that, I mean, actually, a lot of people find, think that his arguments don't work, but he claims that if you're maximally instrumentally rational and you're also maximally theoretically rational, uh, you know, you're performing very, very well as a knower, then, according to him and his very complicated argument, you can actually not maximize those two abilities at the same time without taking on a kind of communal uh, attitude towards oh. other agents because you will be better informed if you're you know able to com commu uh, com communicate with the others uh, around you you will be better able to achieve your aims if you people kind of coordinate their aims etc so i mean if something like that were right that you could actually be more intelligent and more able to achieve rents if you're you know you were a kind of team player and you would team up with other intelligent beings etc if that type of argument were, were right, then we shouldn't worry about superintelligences because they would probably live up to those Michael Smithian, uh, you know, standards of morality coming out of rationality. However, yeah. on the other side of the spectrum, if you agree with someone like Bostrom, you would say that actually they would be maximally instrumentally rational, but that wouldn't mean anything about, you know, their ends or their moral values. And so, yeah. I mean, I don't know exactly how to adjudicate between those two perspectives. And like I said, that a lot of people who have seen Smith's work on this in the last, uh, I guess, five, 10 years, don't agree with him. But uh, it's just to say that there's a lot of disagreement about whether maximal intelligence would sort of also mean maximal, I don't know, uh, virtue or something like that. Yeah. Uh, well, so, so I study philosophy of religion, and this is really fascinating because it seems like <clears throat> that would be uh, beneficial to arguments about the nature of god you know if he's if he is god if he, it seems uh, like if he's perfectly rational then he would have to be morally perfect and then you have a reason to think that he is a morally sufficient reason for allowing evil in the world because usually the problem of evil is the main argument against god's existence so that's super fascinating i think there's really really fun implications and i i actually i bring up the inscrutability thing because that's that's coming in my head from 
from philosophy of religion where where people say why is there evil in the world well it's inscrutable to beings like us because we're so far god is so far beyond us and so there's this whole skeptical theist argument uh which i i see an analog in uh in philosophy of agi type stuff so yeah, well, really another fun. analog would be, uh, you know, people sometimes say that, you know, God works in mysterious ways and uh, we sure. don't understand the plan. And so some, that's another solution to the problem of evil, that uh, it's actually all for the best. And yeah. in the same way, you could probably ar argue that uh, it, it's quite possible that there would be a super intelligent, benevolent uh, super AI, but we wouldn't quite understand why it wants us to do certain thing and, and yeah. things and behave in certain ways. And so it could be to, to us inscrutable why it would make the super benevolent, but to us evil seeming recommendations or perform the actions that we think seem wrong. But so then that, that would be another kind of parallel to the idea yeah. of a kind of good divine entity that seemingly causes totally. problems for us. Totally. The, the problem being that if, if uh, Michael Smith is wrong and Bostrom's right, then we think that it's, it's being benevolent, but it's, it's maligned and it turns into, it turns out to be Ultron trying to blow up the planet or Eagle Eye trying to get us to be, you know, do terrorist acts in order to have world peace or something. And so that is kind of a, a tough thing to know whether or not we should trust. Um, I hope that Michael Smith would be right on that. But um, another thing that's, Okay, so the control problem, I, I wanted to acknowledge this because I, I heard that Eliezer Yudkowsky, he made up the paperclip maximizer thing, but he was talking about like particles and he wasn't talking about actual paperclips. I, I heard the Lex Friedman episode, folks. I know that he said that. I get it. It's kind of taken off into two different directions. So just bear in mind that um, when it comes to the control problem and the alignment, uh, value alignment uh, issue problem, um, do you think that it would be better for a super intelligent AI to be conscious, like phenomenally conscious, or uh, to not be phenomenally conscious? Uh, well, I mean, one of the people I discussed in the book, uh, Carissa Belize, a mm. uh, philosopher in Oxford, uh, uh, she argues that because technologies are not conscious, they can't understand morality. Yeah. Uh, because they, she thinks that in order for someone to understand why suffering is a bad thing that should be avoided and that we should try to not, uh, you know, we shouldn't cause suffering, one has to have an understanding of what suffering is, and that requires the ability to suffer yourself. And so, Carissa mm. Valise is right that uh, you can't be a moral agent and do good in the world unless you're conscious, unless you understand feelings and suffering, etc. Uh, if that's right, then yes, it would be better if the superintelligence had some sort of consciousness so that it had a, a sort, of, sort of understanding of what it is to, to suffer. And maybe it could be motivated because of that too, to try mm. to relieve people's suffering. Uh, I mean, it's a, I, it reminds me a little bit of this uh, argument in philosophy about the, what Mary didn't know or whatever it's called. Yep. Like, you know, the scientist who knows everything about color but has been in a black and white room all her life. Uh, and then, uh, you know, only learns what red really means when she goes out and sees a tomato or whatever they're yeah, that's right. so, so yeah. The question then, of course, would be if AI could be like that. So they could be like, like the scientist in the black and white room and knew everything about suffering, but it didn't have a, a clear mm. sense of it. Uh, I mean, this goes a little bit to, uh, I mean, we, I think we didn't mention Plato yet, but there's this traditional idea about from Plato that to really know the good is to be motivated by it and to, you know, if you don't, you know, know the good, you don't, then, then you're not going to have the right motivation. So I mean, if that kind of theory is right about moral motivation and Carissa Valise was right as a kind of second premise that 
uh, you know, you have to know, experience suffering to see what's bad about it, then those two, you know, premises together might imply that it would be better if the superintelligence would have consciousness, because then it could know and be motivated by uh, avoiding the bad and promoting the good. Yeah. But both uh, the platonic view that, you know, there has to be some kind of, that there's some sort of intimate connection between motivation and, and a sort of moral uh, knowledge, whatever, and the view that you can only understand moral uh, uh, ideas if you can have a conscious experience. I mean, those are obviously very plausible, mm-hmm. but both controversial ideas. And so uh, unless those premises are true, I'm not sure why it would be necessary for superintelligence to have consciousness in terms of how it's going to treat us. Uh, I mean, maybe it, it just it's going to be like Mary the scientist. It's not yet super informed. It might be super uh, intelligent, but it doesn't know about certain things because it doesn't have certain experiences. Mm-hmm. And so there could be, I mean, taking it back to the philosophy of religion, uh, an even more intelligent and better informed form of AI that also had those experiences and that experiential knowledge that yeah. comes with consciousness. And so, uh, I mean, some people say that super intelligent AI is going to try to create more uh, improved version of itself. And so the idea there might be then that it would try to make a next generation of AI be conscious because the conscious AI would have certain knowledge, like mm-hmm. what, what it looks like, what pain feels like, that the former generation that lacked consciousness would, would lack. And so uh, if you bought the thesis that it would try to self-improve all the time, that, that would perhaps even lead to consciousness and mm. yeah i wonder i wonder that's really fascinating and if it had access to its own source code it could improve itself and and i think i think uh, that's what some some theorists claim when the singularity happens that it'll be the super intelligent ai who has you know access to their own source code i wonder if they would if they would be like i don't like i don't like this uh you know because we we already mentioned heidegger um heidegger and some of the existentialists whether or not you consider heidegger existentialist or not i don't want to touch on that but um they have this idea of, of uh, heidegger has this idea of thrownness that you're thrown into this world sartre and and uh, camus talk about you know like existing without my consent and i wonder uh if the ai would 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 snap into consciousness and then turn it turn it off i don't i don't like this maybe i'll go out there's also in the same realm there's kind of an anti-natalist uh, argument which is tricky to navigate where some people are saying like, you know, this world's jacked up. Why, why should I have children and invite them into this, you know, uh, this treacherous garden? Uh, but the same folks would be like, yes, we should generate, you know, artificial a- a- AGI that is synthetically conscious. And uh, I wonder, I wonder, so in, in the human case, it's a biological thing. Uh, it's very easy. It, it's easy for most people to do. Um but in this case, it's like a really strict project where like people are trying to make this thing come about insofar as people are trying to make conscious machines. Uh, is there any kind of like reason not to from from like an antinatalist type view? Uh, I guess you don't have to be an antinatalist to, to have this view, but to say like, hey, we have enough conscious beings already in the world. Why should we make another one that's a different kind of thing than us? Yeah, I mean, I've already mentioned uh, Bryson's view about that, that uh, yeah. we oh, have this true. problem that there would be right. a kind of slave. And I, I mentioned also my twist on that, what I call the new control problem. Then there would right. be something problematic about wanting to control the technology because it would be person-like and we shouldn't control persons. Right. But there's also, I mean, I'm, I'm reminded also of an argument uh, from uh, uh, Tom Douglas, uh, bioethicist and philosopher in Oxford, 
Uh, he had a very interesting paper a couple of years ago uh, about moral status, hmm. where he argues that that you know obviously entities or beings with moral status should be treated well by us, but and, and then you might think that's really good to be a being with moral status because we get better treatment. On the yeah. other hand, a lot of the you know the the, the treatment that we uh, deserve is you know, people try to prevent us from suffering, try not to you know. Uh, to improve our perhaps bad lives. And so in a certain sense, it might be worse for the AI if it became conscious because then it become, becomes vulnerable to uh, suffering maybe. Of course, you, you could have the view that there could be a totally suffering-free type of consciousness. Yeah. Uh, I mean, some religious traditions have thought that uh, that's maybe possible. That's like a nirvana state that you might yeah. uh, achieve after long you know, meditation or like many rebirths or whatever. Sure. Uh, but still... Even in that same tradition, it's sometimes the idea that actually it's impossible because, like, nirvana would be a state where you kind of almost cease to exist because the suffering is part of human existence, and so right. consciousness can't help by being, uh, you know, mixed mixed in with with sort of uh, with with suffering and vulnerability, and so yeah, the the AI might we might not do it a favor by making it conscious because we might make it suffer and actually. Right. We might give it moral status because we didn't have to treat it well, but it would be nicer for it if, if there was no need for us to treat it well because then it didn't have to suffer. Right. Uh, that's another possible view that would be inspired by this uh, Tom Douglas line of thought and also the Buddhism thrown in for good measure. Yeah, yeah that's right. Well, so even even in the Christian tradition that I find myself in, um, you know, in the new heavens and the new earth, there's, there's said to be no suffering. And so if you're a Christian, then you do think this is possible um, to have consciousness without suffering. You presumably God has uh, consciousness and he's existed without suffering before he created the world. And whether you're a process theist, whatever, there's all sorts of debates, but um, yeah, that's, that's really, really fascinating. Um, Sven, this is, this has been awesome, man. I, thanks for letting me go all over the place. Um, I'm, you got to come back on cause there's so much stuff to, to talk about. Please, please do come back. Um, we've only touched on like a couple chapters of this. Uh, this book is fantastic. There's a lot of stuff going on. You, you said that it's kind of fallen out of fashion, but autonomous vehicles, I mean, that's a really big thing. I remember when it first came out and it was really sexy to talk about, and now no one cares, but that's a really big deal. Uh, and you, you talk about that a lot in the book. Um, what, yeah, yeah. So so you're going to have to come back on and talk about that as well. Um, what, what, are you, what are you feeling as we, as we close here? Are you feeling optimistic, pessimistic, scared? What are you feeling about, about AI and... Uh, the humans, our, our ability to handle this at this current moment? Uh, well, first of all, thanks a lot for the kind words ab about the book. Mm -hmm. And I'd be happy to come back on the show uh, and, and discuss self-driving cars, etc. But I mean, I, I am of two minds about uh, the current AI development. Uh, on the one hand, uh, you know, if there's reasons to, to be maybe concerned about uh, it's things developing too fast and things that go going out of control. But on the other hand, it's also really nice to see that there's so much discussion of sort of these ethical social questions, uh, not just coming from philosophers and uh, theologians or whatever, but also from people in the tech industry. Uh, they're all talking about it and being, well, not all of them, but a lot of them are concerned about it and they're taking this seriously. And the big tech companies, they sometimes do fire their ethicists, but they do also hire them and they, they do yeah. care about these things. And so it's at least good to see that there's so much discussion on the society of, the ethical side of things and that uh, it's not just coming from philosophers 
uh, and it's coming also from different corners and the, there's a nice discussion and debate going on. So I, that, that I see as a really good development. Okay. Um, do you think that, do you think AI will be a, a humanity's downfall? Um, <laughs> well, I, it could be. Uh, I mean, there are many things that could, that could be our downfall, but, and, but, but it's worth mentioning also that it could be our downfall, not because it's going to be like the robot overlords, but it could just be because it's one of the ways in which we're, we're ruining the uh, natural environment and uh, causing too much climate change because, uh, you know, training, uh, you know, doing machine learning, it's, it's using up so much. Uh, energy and uh, you know you're building the, the the equipment that you know you you know the computers using up natural resources and mm. uh, so it may just be that it causes you know uh, out of control climate change and that's how AI will bring, you know bring down the world so to speak so yeah. that's one opportunity one possibility one risk another would be the kind of the AI robot overlord takeover but uh, I think maybe it's more likely that it's going to cause so much uh, environmental problems and mm. perhaps also. It might cause, you know, there might be a lot of uh, misinformation being spread by large language models, causing political unrest and possibly even civil wars and things like, or, you know, wars between nations. And so yeah. there are all sorts of ways in which AI can indirectly cause, uh, you know, the, I can't what phrase you use, like the downfall of the world or something like yeah. that. But, uh, you know, at the end of the world might be brought about by AI, not because it's super intelligent, but because we're using it in a not very intelligent way. That's a good phrase. I like that one. Yeah, that's a that's a great place to leave it. Folks, uh, thanks for tuning in. Uh, if you guys like this episode, leave us a like. Uh, I want to hear from you guys, your comments. Do you think AI is going to cause the downfall of humanity? Um, let me know in the comments. I will respond, and I love hearing from you guys. Uh, actually, Sven, last thing before I let you go, where can people find more of your work if they're interested? Uh, yeah, well, so maybe the, the best place would actually be to, to, to look on Twitter. I, my Twitter handle is just my name, like at Sven Nyholm, at Sven Nyholm. And uh, basically, whenever I publish a new paper, or I mean, I mean books don't come as often as, as papers, I, I always put up a link. Or, you know, if I do a, a podcast or a show like this, I would put up a link. So that's the easiest. Uh, if, if anyone is interested in following my work, follow me on Twitter is basically the easiest way to do that. Awesome. Fantastic. Well, folks, that's going to have to do it for us for now. This has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God.